welcome back to another mini episode brought to you by the Future Cities podcast. My name is Tessa Martinez, and I am the host of these mini episodes where I discuss current events with graduate students involved in the Urban Resilience to Extremes Research Network. Although lately, I've been interviewing Stephen a lot. (laughs) Uh, Stephen is a PhD student at the Arizona State University in the School of Life Sciences. While his background is predominantly in aquatic ecology, he always has been interested in the connections between people and the environment. His research now focuses on ecosystem services of green infrastructure and the ways in which urban stakeholders perceive and use those services to prepare for the future. Prior to ASU, Stephen graduated from the University of Notre Dame in 2014 with a Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Science and a minor in Sustainability. After his undergraduate, Stephen worked for two years in a stream ecology lab at Baylor University before starting his PhD in the fall of 2016. Welcome, Stephen. (laughs) Thanks, Tessa. Happy to be back. Awesome. So our first topic discusses oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And in the article written by Anna M. Phillips for the LA Times, Uh, It discusses the Trump administration's decision to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge for the first time in history to the petroleum industry. And this next quote I thought was significant um, because it really references the amount of land that is going to be used in this endeavor. And it says the plan would allow oil leasing on 1.56 million acres of the 19 million acre refuge. Uh, This proposal, which would open up the entire coastal plain to the energy industry, was seen as the most extreme of three options considered by the Interior Department. So 1.56 million acres is a really big chunk of land that we're talking about, and there are a lot of habitats that will be fragmented due to the petroleum industry's development in the area. So based off of your conversation with um, Jenna in the last episode, what could this mean for those habitats? Uh, Yeah, so obviously there are huge ramifications for the habitat of this refuge if this uh, drilling starts to take place. So yeah, obviously um, habitat will be destroyed to make room for drilling. So there's very direct habitat destruction going on there. Um, And then, yeah, as we talked about in the previous uh, episode, uh, this destruction sort of fragments the habitat and those uh, parts of the habitat that are surrounding, directly surrounding the drilling sites are now going to be exposed to all sorts of uh, nastiness that they wouldn't have otherwise been exposed to. So uh, emissions from the drilling itself, any spilling that might occur, um, and spilling does occur at these sorts of things, even if it's not necessarily at a high amount, that does happen. Uh, so that'll have some sort of effect on the environment directly surrounding this the drilling locations. Uh, They also uh, are noisy, and that can have uh, pretty major impacts on wildlife. So uh, animals have evolved to use sounds to communicate for all sorts of reasons, to find food, to find mates, etc. And noise from drilling locations can drown those sounds out, so animals will have a harder time finding mates, finding food, and that can have pretty negative, that can have negative impacts on, uh, on wildlife communities. Yeah, that's a really good point. I actually hadn't considered that before. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I was just listening to a podcast all about uh, sound and animal sound specifically, and uh, that's sort of why it was on my mind. Um, but uh, yeah, beyond beyond those impacts, like one of the most important uh, 
non-living factors that influences the environment is, is light. And so habitat destruction totally changes the, uh, the amount of light that is reaching the parts of the environment, right? So if you think about a forest being chopped down, um, just like a, just a part of one forest, and now all of the parts uh, that have been chopped down in that little area, now there's much more light reaching that area than there was before. So that allows for different sorts of plants to thrive that wouldn't thrive otherwise. So there are plants that specifically do much better in high light environments, whereas other plants need there to be more shade. So fragmentation uh, lets uh, plants that uh, thrive in light to do very well and that in turn can, ha can help lead to higher populations of animals that also like the plants that do well in light. Uh, so yeah, there's all sorts of species that do well in fragmentation, uh, sorry, that do well in fragmented habitats. So like white-tailed deer, for example, do very well in uh, fragmented forests. Mm. So um, there's it issues with fragmentation there and uh, human uh, connections to that. So like these people run into white-tailed deer, white deer on the road, right? That's partially because, oh, now we have a road going through the forest, but it's also because white-tailed deer really like fragmented forests. So you might expect there to be more uh, collisions with cars, for example, in fragmented areas. Um, so yeah. lots of impacts on habitat. Uh, but beyond that, it's just like these decisions are just sort of incredibly frustrating to me, um, especially in this day and age. Like uh, we know climate change is happening. We know that burning fossil fuels is one of the predominant drivers of climate change. Uh, and climate change scientists tell us like, look, if we want to avoid the largest impacts of climate change, we need to stop emissions today or better yet yesterday. Um, and yet we see these decisions being made to not only keep burning fossil fuels, but actually continue to drill to find more fossil fuels to burn. It's, um, it's really frustrating. And it also just, to me, I, I mean, I'm not a business person, so, I'm, so I'll preface this by saying that, but as a, from a business perspective, it doesn't really make much sense to me because it seems short-sighted. So the world is clearly moving towards the direction of renewable energy. Um, so it doesn't really make much sense to me to keep you know, hammering in on this dying uh, energy form that the world is clearly trying to move on from. Um, I guess these companies, that's what these companies do and that's what they know, um, but they're gonna die sooner or later because the oil will run out and yeah. or governments will decide that we're no longer doing this. So anyway, it's really frustrating. Yeah, and it really calls into, the, to, into ethics and just our moral obligation in general um, like, do, do we have a moral obligation to future generations? And, you know, I mean, to me, that's really um, the point of sustainability. It's really just to ensure that future generations have somewhat a seat at the table today, you know, and the decisions that we make today aren't going to compromise their future. And so, yeah, I, I agree. I completely, I mean, I'm a sustainability major, so <laughs> we're definitely yeah. biased in this. Preaching of the choir a bit, I know. Yeah, it is, it is very frustrating to see these decisions being made. Uh, just so clearly looking at short-sighted gains. Like, yeah, they're going to make a lot of money off this, no doubt. And that's going to enrich a lot of people. But 
uh, yeah, thinking about future generations, I don't think there's really much of a moral argument to be made for doing this drilling. I, I, I think you'd have to be pretty hard pressed to make moral argument for it. Definitely. Well, um, our next topic is a little bit lighter. Um, so this next topic talks about planting trees to offset carbon emissions. And this article written by Damian Carrington for The Guardian explores how the planting of a trillion trees could make a huge dent in carbon capture. Um, planting billions of trees across, this is, sorry, I should go into, this is a quote that I'm about to read off. <laughs> Planting billions of trees across the world is one of the biggest and cheapest ways of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere to tackle the climate crisis. And really quick, did I use the correct uh, term when I said carbon capture? I actually don't know if I said, if that's the uh, right word for that. Carbon capture, carbon storage, carbon sequestration, they all, they all okay. fit for what you're describing. Cool. All right, uh, yeah, they say that this measurement of land needed or this, they say that this measurement of land area needed excluded fields used to grow crops and urban areas, so they didn't take that into account. But um, this area averaged about the size of the United States and China combined. And this restoration method of planting a bunch of trees is one of the top ways of combating climate change, um, in their opinion. And I thought that this would, you know, ensure that we ended the podcast on a positive note because, you know, of all the complex and innovative ways of combating climate change, like, you know, there are some really uh, adventurous ones like, um, you know, sending things into outer space and all of that, you know, this kind of, this seems like the more simple, I mean, obviously, logistically, it might not be that simple, but um you know, in theory, it's one of the more simple and supposedly effective ones if it were to be implemented. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. It is, it is more simple. It doesn't require a bunch of like millions and millions of dollars of research to go into like developing a new technology to remove carbon from the atmosphere. Like we know trees do this. That's what they, that they, they photosynthesize and they remove carbon from the, from the atmosphere via that, that process. So yeah. We know trees do this. They do a really good job of it. So yeah, you're right. It is totally very simple and they'll do more than just take carbon from the, from the air, right? Trees do all sorts of things. They, um, so, I mean, this, this paper in particular talks about trees outside of urban areas. So I won't talk about urban benefits that trees provide, but uh, they provide wildlife habitat, which we were just talking about uh, a moment ago. And so that's obviously really important. Uh, they clean water in watersheds. They um, help stabilize soils and prevent erosion. So there's all sorts of good things that these trees um, could do. Um, but as you said, it's it's um, logistically probably a bit trickier to make this happen because that is uh, that's a lot of trees uh, for you know to lack for lacking a technical term. That's a lot, a lot of trees, and uh, and. Yeah, I guess I'm just curious how that would actually go about being implemented. There may be easier to make that argument for trees, because I think even even Donald Trump is on board with planting more trees. Yeah. Uh, and he's someone who does not acknowledge the science of climate change, and yet he's on board with planting trees. So that's great. He's on board potentially with a solution to climate change, even if he doesn't acknowledge it as a solution to climate change. Great. That's That's awesome. That's the best we can hope for from people who 
deny the science of climate change, right? We want that sort of solution to appeal to them. Um, but um, yeah, in terms of actually getting it done, I, I don't know. So in the article, they say, you know, individuals could have a tangible impact uh, in part by planting trees themselves. And I don't know if I'm terribly convinced uh, by that argument, is that's a lot of trees that would need, that individuals would need to plant to have a tangible impact. And I don't think it's necessarily right to put that responsibility on the individuals. Um, in, in particular because, well, one, most people live in cities and it's hard to plant trees in cities. Just it's not a very good environment for trees to live in. It's hard to keep urban forests alive. Uh, and also most people in cities don't really have yards. They live in apartment complexes and what land do they have that they're gonna be able to plant a tree on? So I don't really know if that's very feasible, not to mention all the time and money that it would take to actually as an individual plant trees. Yeah, so I think that um, there are more effective ways uh, than, than just the individual level to, to, to get more trees. So one is to push for the government to take this sort of initiative on. So elect people that would be on board with planting more trees and divvying up the responsibility to actually do that into government agencies that have the capacity to do that. But then also, as the article pointed out, um, you can also put pressure on companies to have more responsible business practices. So large corporations are responsible for a lot of the deforestation that we see in the world. So if we can apply pressure to these large corporations in some way, either by not buying things from them um, or you know whatever other mechanisms there are, maybe government regulation, uh, that might be a way to, to do it at a, at a larger scale. And I, and I think that would be more effective than, than asking individuals to do it themselves. Yeah, I 100% I agree with that. I think there's a lot of, um... There's a lot of power that we have as consumers, and I think that that's um, definitely a key way that we can influence, you know, um, how business as usual is operated today. Yeah, I had another thought uh, about this, and yeah, planting all these trees would be great, but I don't know if it will really solve the issue entirely because deforestation occurred and is continuing to occur. So if we don't actually make changes to the system that was responsible for all the deforestation, then I don't know if planting all these trees is going to do much because if we plant all of them, all these, all the drivers that cause deforestation go away. No, they don't. We still have agriculture. I don't know the land use trajectory for agriculture. So maybe agriculture land use is leveling off and we won't need much more and, and people will be, you know, wanting to cut down forests to make room for ag in the future. I don't know that, but um, yeah, I think addressing what those drivers of deforestation are, I think is really important to consider in when you're talking about just planting more trees. Planting more trees is good, but it's not the only thing to consider. We need to consider the other drivers that drive deforestation. So. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if the information that was provided in the article takes into account um, you know, how much uh, deforestation is occurring, you know, throughout this process of planting the trees, which inevitably would take a good chunk of time. Um, I wonder if they took into account how much deforestation would be happening at the time of, you know, planting these trees and all of that. Yeah, I don't know whether the study just assumed, oh, all deforestation stops and then we add all these trees. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I haven't read the actual, the, the paper that they talked about this. I just sort of skimmed the article you shared, so. 
Yeah, well, thank you for joining me today, Stephen. It's always nice talking to you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, always happy to be here and to chat with you. Thanks again for having me. Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.